0: Recently, a slew of magazines declared that the city where we worship, Frisco, Texas, is the best place to live in all of America. A lot of people from around the country wrote me in response to that, a lot of my friends, especially when the Money Magazine article came out, I got a bunch of mail. Uh, Many of them were congratulating, a few were jealous, and one old pal of mine in Virginia wrote this. He wrote me and said, Wayne, you must have moved away from Frisco, and that's what put the town over the top. (laughs) Nice. Nice, no, I'm still here. But the two most interesting notes I got about all this came from residents of this city, uh, Frisco people. The first one said, Wayne, obviously the writers of that study didn't take growing traffic into their consideration. And the second one was really darkly humorous. Somebody wrote and said this, Wayne, can you please write a series of articles about all the horrors of life in Frisco? It could stop this overpowering flow of immigrants. I don't want you to actually lie. Well, I guess I really do want you to lie. Just do something to stem the flood. Close quote, <clears throat> I, uh, I refuse but I understand and I commiserate with the pains of our fellow citizens and yet I think scripture offers a better solution. Rather than try to diminish the world that is moving into your backyard, how about we do something much more useful? Let's continue to build healthy community along with all those people and among all those people whom God sends our way. Amen? For example, consider that motley crowd of people that were thrust together in Jerusalem when the Lord birthed His very first church. They were from all over the world. They employed many different tongues. They appeared to have been from all walks of life, and yet they allowed God's Spirit to build them together into an amazing redeemed community. Listen, Luke's summary statement, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. That is redeemed community in a nutshell. And if they could build that kind of community in those tense and oppressive times, surely we can do the same today. Of course, that brings up a huge question, one that you are likely asking right now in your favorite uh, Morgan Freeman, Emmett Morgan Freeman. How can we do that? What does it take to build a healthy community? I'm so glad you asked. Thank you for asking. If you look in your notes, you'll see the Bible lays out two requirements. You want to build a healthy community? Two requirements, love and discernment. Love and discernment. Let's start with the requirement of love. Turn your Bible to uh, 1 John, 1 John chapter 4, actually. 1 John's near the very end of your Bible, fifth book from the end. Go to 1 John chapter 4, and let's pick it up in verse 19. We're going to read most of this chapter today in pieces. We're going to start with verse 19. John writes, we love because he first loved us. Love, love, love. Four Greek terms for love. There were four Greek terms for love. The highest one is agape. And that's the root word that is used twice in this short verse, agape. Agape is, is self-sacrificial love. It has almost nothing to do with feeling. Okay, agape is not about feeling. This highest and most important word for love represents a choice. Agape is a choice. 2017, at a triathlon, the Brownlee brothers of the United Kingdom gave an excellent illustration of agape. Take a look. You'll understand why I say that when you see their little clip. Oh, Watch. and he's
1: starting to slow and there is a little way to go there's half a k to go and johnny is running out of time and is losing he's losing his sense of direction this is worrying oh goodness me this is a horrible sight jonathan brownlee has lost it now and has staggered to a stop at the side of the course, and Alistair's stopped to help him along. And Alistair is gonna try and carry his brother home. Dramatic scenes in Cozumel, as the Olympic champion carries his younger brother towards the podium. Oh my God, I cannot believe what we are seeing here, Matt. Is this allowed? Is he allowed to help his brother? You know, is that part of the rules? I'm not too sure. We've never seen anything like this before. Unbelievable scenes, unbelievable scenes in Cosimo To finish in second and third but Johnny can hardly stand and Alistair is having to drag him across the line and pushing him home, pushing him home for second. Johnny finishes in second, goodness me, what an incredible conclusion here.
0: If we're going to enjoy a redeemed community, it must be built on that kind of love. Agape love, it's self-sacrificial. Agape means I I willfully give up my place for my brother or sister. And here's the really shocking part. Listen carefully to this. Agape love does not cause regrets. In fact, the number one response to agape love is joy. The the Apostle John considered this deeply. He shared a lot of Jesus' remarkable teaching on agape. Look up here, 17th chapter of John's Gospel, uh, verses 9 through 12. As the Father has loved me, says Jesus, so I have loved you, he says to his followers. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Seven times, seven times in those five short sentences, the Lord speaks of agape. Seven times he uses agape. And what's the result? What's the result of all that self-sacrificial love? Joy. Repeated joy, right? It's a theme that Jesus and John are going to relate many times. God's joy fills people who, like Jesus, surrender themselves in love. But, of course... On this fallen world, there are some blockades that keep us from loving and keep us from enjoying and experiencing agape. I think one of the most problematic blockades is that we don't understand. We just don't understand the love that God has has given to us and taught us to practice. Think about it. Just, Just think about your world right now. We live in a world that teaches that nearly every act of service is actually a secret evil, right? That's what we're taught this society screams that we can only find joy if we will get rid of any sense of obedience or uh, or other centeredness. The world says I can only find joy in complete and immediate self gratification, right? And this lack of comprehension comes into the church. It does. Let me just give you a mundane example. Christian introverts these days really like to complain about extroverts talking to them in church. I'm totally serious. I I see these complaints. There is no desire to understand that that extrovert is showing agape by choosing to engage in conversation with a nerdy introvert, right? How nice of them. Doesn't even cross our mind. And it cuts the other way too. The extrovert doesn't try to understand that introvert who says almost nothing and just fiddles with paper during your conversation, right? You don't understand that they're actually showing you agape by listening to you, you big blowhard, right? Right? And when they hand you an origami creation at the end, that's agape. They're shown love to you. Because we are conditioned to mistrust and misunderstand agape, we have a hard time practicing it. And because we have a hard time practicing self-sacrificial love, well, that's why we struggle to build community. Here's another blockade to agape. Sometimes we see it as a limited resource that needs to be hoarded, right? We, we, we think of agape like toothpaste, like something that is, that is wasted, used up once it is employed, right? That's, that's how we think of it. And actually, agape is like, it's like water, a resource that cannot be wasted. Okay, shocker for you here, and I love the state of Texas, but they are completely obscene in spending all these millions of dollars trying to teach you not to waste water. It can't be wasted! Did you not take third grade science? It's a water cycle! It cannot be wasted. Now, it can be foolishly employed sometimes. It can be it can be inappropriately utilized, but it can't be wasted. It always comes back, right? It doesn't matter how many gallons per flush, it all comes back, right? <laughs> the same thing's true with agape. It, it, it can be frivolously misapplied, but it can't be wasted. It always comes back. Another barrier to agape is when we usurp God's role. We take God's role. That'll kill agape. This one's significant. It's kind of tricky. So I want you to follow John's logic here. We can love, why? Why can we love everybody? Because he first loved us. Okay, put another way, uh, our love originates with and draws upon God's agape, right? This, this lamp can be very bright. Is it bright right now? Why not? Right, it's not plugged in, right? When I plug the lamp in, then suddenly... It can be very bright. But suppose this lamp looks up and says, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that role myself. I'm going to be my own source, right? I'm not, I don't like Mr. Tesla's alternating current anymore. I'm going to do it myself. I'm just going to unplug and shut. What happens? Darkness, right? You're nothing. It cannot shine. That's why God forbids us to take his place in, in things like, uh, like vengeance, Just consider vengeance. It's one of the many tragic ways that we try to take over God's role. We unplug ourselves from the source of agape. Look at the order in uh, Leviticus 19, okay? Watch the order here. Look, do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Do you see? Love cannot survive with grudges or vengeance. Why? Because Yahweh is God. You unplug from reliance upon him. You try to be your own source, and you lose the love necessary for community. We could cover these for hours. We're going to limit ourselves to one last obstacle. One last obstacle to agape, the failure to capitalize on opportunities. This was mentioned by a number of members of our pulpit team as we were working on this together. Uh, Cindy Sharp wrote, "Um, We are prone to take love for granted and thus lose it. Martin McDonald added, Love relationships require deliberate effort and energy to grow and maintain. Time must be invested in them. And David Wade said this in our group, many things cause us to miss the opportunity to practice agape. Most notable in my experience, he said, are the sin of pride, self-protection, judging others, and wanting to be served instead of serving. Let's practice honest community here right now. If you have ever Made those mistakes. Let me put it this way. If you have ever failed to capitalize on an opportunity to show or receive love, ever failed to capitalize on an opportunity to show or receive love, raise your hand. Yeah, me too. You want to enjoy real community? Strive past the barriers and practice the requirement of agape. Now, the second requirement for healthy community is of discernment. Look up here. Look at the commands in 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, 21 and 22. Paul says, but test all things, hold on to what is good, stay away from every kind of evil. This, uh, the context here is part of the Apostle Paul's uh, fantastic staccato summary at the end of his first letter to his old friends uh, back in, in Thessalonica. Um, the, the Thessalonians are some people who, along with Paul, have faced severe persecution and some really serious problems. So Paul brilliantly relates, how are you going to build redeemed community in a tough environment like Thessalonica? three simple steps. Three simple steps. First, test all things. Test. Suppose I get up here one Sunday and I tell you, you must pray six times a day or you cannot go to heaven. Right? I, I, I look at you and I say, um, if you don't pray six times every day, you lose your justification. You have to show the fruit of that kind of prayer. What do you do? Do you take my word for it? Please say no. Please. No. What do you do? You test it you check with the only authoritative source on earth, the Bible. And when you don't find that in the Bible, when you don't find that anywhere, what do you do? You run me out of town on a rail, right? With tarring and feathering just for good measure. Got it? Test all things, no matter the source. Step two, hold to the good. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Anybody here grow up under the guidance of a flawed parent? You had a flawed parent. Raise your hand. Okay. Okay. Every, flash, newsflash, every parent is flawed this side of heaven. My kids, look at my kids holding their hand. <laughs> uh, so what we learn to do is we learn to, <clears throat> we learn to sift through the good and the bad that we inherit, right? We, we pan out the gold and we discard the mud. Especially when we start having our own children, we spend time thinking about what was good, what was good about my upbringing? So let's share. Let, let's, let's enjoy this for a moment. Let's hold to the good. Um, Raise your hand if you have something that you think of one good trait from one, one of your parents. What was a good trait? I'll call on you. Raise your hand. Share a, a really good trait that you enjoyed in your, in your parents. Yes, what do you got? Um, very, understanding. very understanding. Now see, here's the problem. Her parents I know are in this service and she says very understanding. Now I don't know about you, you may not be as cynical as I am, but my assumption is she just did something really wrong <laughs> and they haven't found out about it yet. And this afternoon, she's going to remind them, everybody applauded you, mom and dad. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. She's actually a precious kid, and I doubt she's ever done anything wrong. Yes? My parents loved people that they didn't have to love. Loved people they didn't have to love. Well said. Yes, what do you got? My parents it work can also be fun. is good. For work is good. Work, hey, man, that was my dad, too. Yeah, what do you got? They were interested in my interest. They were interested in my Oh, well done. Yeah, what you got? Persevere, uh, yeah, amen, that's true. Perseverance, all right, awesome. Now, discerning all those good traits and putting them into practice, that's, you know, that's how we begin to construct joyful community of our own. Of course, that can only occur if we also employ the, the third part, the final part of discernment, which is to separate from the bad. Look at the text again. Test all things. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was very committed to community. Bonhoeffer even developed a small seminary community. He wrote a book about their community called Life Together. This is a guy who cared about community. And yet, when the National Church of Germany, his church, joined with the Nazi government, Bonhoeffer was one of the very few to dissent. He was one of the dissenters. And I, I don't have time to go into it, but... You need to just understand, for a Prussian to disagree with official policy is massive. It just just doesn't happen. So this is a huge deal. Dietrich considered their National Socialist program, and he found that it did not gel with Scripture. So he stayed away from that form of evil. Bonhoeffer and others still believe in community. They still believe in community, but they knew that healthy community cannot happen when you mix evil practice with Scripture. So what they did was they formed a new church called the Confessing Church, and they issued the Barman Declaration. Um, this, this new organization allowed them to stand in community even in the face of a very hostile culture. They became a great example of doing discernment well. L- listen, listen to the discernment here. Just one little part of the Barman Declaration 1934. We reject the false doctrine that the state should and could become the single totalitarian order of human life, thus fulfilling the church's vocation as well. Close quote, can you imagine saying that to ascendant Nazi Germany? Imagine saying that today. Love and discernment, with those two requirements met, we can engage in real community. Without either one, we are doomed. That's why Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 puts it all together this way. Read with me, please. Philippians 1, 9, you get the underlined text. Paul says, this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Love and discernment. Now, turn to the right side of our notes, and let's discuss some of the areas where we can apply this, where we, where we can and should revel in fellowship built on love and discernment. The rest of our time is going to be applying this. So let's, let's talk about the first place to apply it. Of first importance is the blessing of community with the Lord. Here's the big idea, and they don't get any bigger. God exists in triunity. And the very thought of God's triunity is the ultimate example of community. The community of the triune God is evident. It's evident in the way he reveals himself to us as one God in three persons. Listen, Matthew chapter 28, 19. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the whom, everybody? And of the... And of the... John 10.17, for this reason the Father loves me, says Jesus, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. John 10.30, I and the Father are what, everybody? One. 2 Corinthians 3.17, now the Lord is the Spirit. And we could go on and on and on, right? The, the, the point is there's unity in the triunity. Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus and the Spirit are one. The Spirit and the Father are one. Yet they're not the same. Each is clearly a distinct personality in the oneness, and they exist in community. Look, there is love shared. There's also glory shared, and power, and activity. For example, uh, think about their activity together. The Scripture declares, did you know this? Scripture declares that all three persons of the Trinity are involved in creation. We have passages that talk about the Father creating, the Son creating, and the Holy Spirit creating. And and the Bible reveals that all of the triune God is engaged in our salvation. Um, Great summary here. Robert Bowman, uh, he says, all three persons of the Trinity are involved in our salvation. The Father calls us into relationship with him through the Son whom he sent. The Son creates the relationship by dying to break down the barrier of rebellion that has separated us from the Father, and the Holy Spirit works within us to trust in the Son, close quote. Therefore, friends, if we are growing up as Christians, which by definition means becoming more godly, if we're growing up as Christians, that means we must be growing in community. It is God's ultimate trait. And those who would emulate Him must emulate that. The most wonderful, shocking, life-changing aspect of community is that we are invited into communion with God. Look again, 1 John chapter 4. You're still there in your text. Uh, Let's read another section. Uh, Let's start at verse 13. Verse 13, <clears throat> excuse me, this is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given, us assur- given assurance to us from his spirit and we have seen and we testify that the father has sent his son as the world's savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in Him remains in, remains in love, remains in God, and God remains in Him. Now, this idea of remaining or abiding—huge concept in John's works. Um, the Greek root that appeared throughout that passage is is this word "meno." Uh, meno, "meno" is an ancient term. It was mainly used for for rooting uh, in a place for for developing and maintaining a homestead. So God says for us to root in Him. We get to build our lives in relationship with God. Now, of course, that takes effort on our part, not to establish the relationship. That's done by God alone. But He lets us play a role in in enjoying and maintaining this communion. Hone in, verse 16. We have come to know and believe the love God has for us. God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him. Do you see what the Spirit is expressing through John's words? When we know and believe the incredible love that God has for us, then we can put roots in that love, and we can enjoy eternal communion with God. This is unique in all of world thought. Let me walk you through. Let me walk you through meno in world thought, okay? Let's just look at the big categories of world thought, and let's think about abiding, okay? Let's, let's take atheism first. Take atheism first. What do you root in in atheism? Nothing. You root in nothing, because you, you believe that this world is only material. It's material only, and there's not gonna be anything permanent. Nothing permanent's gonna last. So since there's nothing permanent, there's nothing to root in, so you root in nothing, right? Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. Buddhism is somewhat similar. It also roots in nothing, but it's an effort. It's an actual attempt. You want to root in nothing, but that's the goal of Buddhism is to reach nirvana, which is nothing, you wanna reach nothingness. If you root in anything, if you meno, that causes pain. And the whole goal is to get away from pain. And so you've you've got to root in very aggressively, empty yourself, root in nothing. That's what Buddhism's all about. Let's take another couple of world thoughts. What about pantheism? if you don't know what pantheism is, think Star Wars, okay? Feel the force, Luke. There is a force, all right? Um, so in, in pantheism, what do you minnow? Well, you minnow in self, You 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 abide in self because the idea is to become a god by getting in touch with the god that is in everything, to feel, Trust your feelings luke you've got to and, and, and it 's especially yourself you're I have to know myself it 's all about me and the God in me and becoming a God in me. Um, Hinduism is somewhat similar it 's uh, also a minnow in self it 's not trying to become a god, but in Hinduism the goal is to become the ultimate human, and through different reincarnations you become the ultimate human through worship of the ten thousand gods, but it but it's not—it's not worship of the gods like in like in polytheism. It's it's really a self thing. You're you're making yourself better all the time, every day, in every way. We're getting better and better. Okay, that's 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 Hindu thought. Polytheism, classic paganism, pantheon of gods. That says there's no agape from the gods. I know this is hard for you Christians to understand, but but when you're reading about about Hercules and others, there's no there's no agape. There's no self-sacrificial love from the gods. They might offer crumbs, but that's it. Okay. But in polytheism, I can relate correctly. To to the gods by keeping their rules. I've got to keep the rules. That's the main thing in paganism. So what do you what do you root in? What do you root in? Legalism, right? That's what you meno. And and theistic religions are very similar. Um, Islam and Judaism and um, a, a lot of Catholic Christianity. What's the idea? I can earn. There there can be love from God in the theistic religions, but I have to earn it. I earn the love from God, and I relate correctly to Him by keeping the rules. I've got to pray the prayer exactly the right way. I've got to do things exactly rightly so that I can please the God. I root in what? Legalism. And then there's you, weird people. And look at all the rest of the world. I minnow in nothing. I, I root in self, or I root in legalism. That's how everybody thinks. But you, via God's agape, I can minnow in Him Forever. A direct, unbreakable, personal relationship—that's an amazing contrast. We get to abide forever, enjoying Him in love. Remember the statement from First John chapter three. We studied this a few days ago. Uh, read the underlined parts with me. First John chapter three. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. The world chose not to know Him. You can make the exact opposite choice. You can know God as your Father, rooted in His family. To do so is profoundly deep and deceptively simple. You believe on the Lord Jesus as Messiah. You believe He is the Son of God sent to save you, and you're saved. We, we We have a lot more to learn. There's more I want to cover. There's a few things I want to cover. Let's stop. Can we stop right here? Let's stop right here and pray. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray for anyone who is studying with me that does not at this point have a relationship with you as Father, and I beg you to draw them to you. May your Holy Spirit spark understanding and, and response. Friend, listen. Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is God himself the very Son of God, who came to earth and died on the cross willingly because he loves you. Agape is this, that he laid down his life. And then he rose from the dead so that if you believe in him, you, you could meddle with him forever, no matter what. But you must trust in Jesus. Do so right now. If you just trusted in Jesus, raise your hand. If you trusted him as Savior, I want to rejoice with you. Good deal. Lord, I pray for all these who are believers in Jesus, new and old. And I ask you to encourage us as we remember what it means to abide. In Jesus' name, amen. Speaking of communion with God. Uh, look at this, friend and I uh, were discussing this recently, and he wrote me this note. He said, Wayne, we don't, at least I don't, understand, accept, and appreciate how great the love of Christ is for us, and what he sacrificed to bring us into fellowship with the triune God. I also agree with your comment, that's from an earlier email I'd written, there is a clear connection between love and fellowship with God, and love and fellowship with our brothers, our wives, our neighbors, and even our enemies, close quote, true. So, let's get to that part of the story. Let's examine community with people. Let's start by community with family. You know, what's somewhat funny. funny. Um, family is such an integral part of biblical thinking that Scripture actually doesn't comment a whole lot on family fellowship. It's, it's rather like when we talk about the weather, which you've done a lot lately, I'm sure. Um, we, don't, we don't talk about, what about those nitrogen ions? Boy, that's really... Because they're, they're uniform. That's just an accepted part. You don't comment on that. So the Bible doesn't comment a whole lot on family fellowship. There are two things that are referenced in the Bible about familial communion. Relishing the blessing of it and managing the stress of it. Um, First, consider how wonderful it is to live relishing the blessings of family community. Psalm 133 is one of David's songs of ascent. It is a great example of biblical wisdom of appreciating family community. Read with me. Psalm 133 verse 1, all together, this is so true, all together. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. Amen. I was thinking about this verse. I was thinking about the blessings and the impact of family community and living in community and family when I got an email. It's fascinating. I was reading this verse and my email dinged. It was my friend Michael and he sent me a note that said this. I can't help but think that this article, what he had attached, is a great tie-in to the join part of our annual vision series. Attached was this article, it's called Thank Heaven for Bigger Boys, it's a short piece, it's written by Angela Rocco Carlo. for years she wrote for the Chicago Tribune, and, and listen to what she had to say, Angela Carlo. sometime after my eldest brother Christy had died, I was visiting our Chicago far west side neighborhood, affectionately known as The Island, a three square block enclave corralled by the towns of Cicero, Berwyn and Oak Park and a factory district. Growing up there was like living in Disneyland where you thought nothing bad could ever happen to you. But walking alone on the sidewalk past our school after the funeral, I felt out of kilter. I I became aware of a feeling I'd never experienced as a child. I felt afraid, alone. I I no longer felt protected there as I always had. In our area, where everyone knew each other, there were many relatives, a cohort of older brothers, including my two brothers, Christy and Peter, and my cousins, and other boys. Thinking back, it was those boys in the family. In fact, the sound of the boys' corduroy pants whooshing as they ran was the sound of safety. Safety. It was never articulated by my parents, yet somehow the message that boys were to protect permeated that neighborhood. I don't recall any bullying, fights, or expressed threats. The boys somehow knew they were to act as good men, as protectors of girls, little kids, and probably old people too. Walking that day past my old school, now greatly enlarged with lunchrooms, playgrounds, libraries, and computers, I wondered about the changes. I hope the new educational facilities might include something of the old school community, where boys were encouraged to think of themselves as protectors. She closes with this But who am I kidding? From what I hear, boys are not encouraged to act like strong protecting men. Too bad. The little kids probably miss them. Close quote. The point is that when family, both nuclear and extended family, live in harmony, then, then little kids are blessed. And so are old people and everybody in between. And that involves living in harmony. And part of that that our culture struggles with is letting boys be boys. The second aspect of family community covered in the Bible is instruction on the other part of it, managing the stresses and strains. Just one example, consider this. Colossians 3.21, fathers do not exasperate your children so they don't become discouraged. Do not exasperate your children. As parents, we must continually manage the stress capacity for our kids. By the way, the same is true of every member of the family community. We all help each other carry burdens so the stress isn't too great on anyone. Otherwise, people become exasperated and discouraged. Don't misunderstand. Stress and strains are not all bad. In fact, they are, they are important. They develop each member of your family. To remove all stress is to make for undeveloped, flabby, useless people, right? Right? But every member of your family has a plimsoll line. Do you know what the plimsoll line is? Some of you sailors do. Let me me explain from Britannica. I grabbed a quick summary thinking we might not know that. Uh, Samuel Plimsoll was a 19th century British politician and a social reformer. His burning cause was the plight of merchant seamen. In his day, hundreds of sailors were lost at sea each year. The reason? Unscrupulous owners were overloading their ships. Here's a quote from Samuel Plimsoll. A great number of ships are so overloaded that it is nearly impossible for them to reach their destination if their voyage is at all rough." Close quote. Britannica says, Plimsall was relentless in his efforts to protect the sailors and succeeded in getting a royal commission appointed to study the issue. Finally, in 1876, Parliament established the Merchant Shipping Act, a government bill that required all ships to have a line painted on their sides, a Plimsa line. Okay, now why paint a line around the hull? Think, think why. You got a ship, it's in the water, and it's a line on the hull. As you're loading the ship, what does every ship do? It sinks down in the water. When it gets to that line, that's the line that has been measured that is the safe place for that ship, even in rough weather, that protects the cargo and the crew. By the way, today, there's still plimsoll lines on ships. You'll see them. But, um, but they, they look like this uh, because they've learned that, that in different temperatures of waters and different salinations, you know, all the oceans aren't the exact same salination. The, the plimsoll line can be a little heavier, a little lighter. So that's what you'll see. Clemson's premise, though, is undeniable. Each ship has a limit to the load it can carry based on the shipping situation. Same in your family. Don't fear stress, but carefully guard against overloading each person in their situation. Now, look back at Acts chapter 242, and let's learn about community with the church. Community with the church. They devoted themselves the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayers. It starts with this word, a call to Koinonia. Um, fellowship is what we translate. It's a great Greek term. Uh, by the way, koinonia appears all the time in Paul's writings. This is its only appearance in Luke. In, all of his, in Luke and Acts is the only place it appears. Koinonia means community, but it's a whole lot deeper than just, well, I happen to worship the same hour you do. Koinonia has a, a strong sharing element to it, kind of like the, the Trinity that we considered earlier. Here's koinonia, koinonia is a fellowship that is one body and yet each individual is important as an individual person. It's a community where people happily share their wealth, they share their property with the whole but that sharing is totally voluntary. Okay? Um, in his book on Acts, J.B. J. Polhill put it this way, koinonia seems to indicate they develop themselves they devoted themselves to a fellowship that was expressed in their mutual meals and their prayer life together. It involved as well their participation in the agape meal, the, the Lord's Supper, together. Now do you see why we take the Lord's Supper as a church? It's not just some rote activity. It's part of our koinonia, and fellowship is more than just breaking bread. All of our life together as a church is to be marked by koinonia. We share. We, we, we share our money, our time, our talents with our church. We see ourselves as one in the Lord. We see ourselves as a reflection of God's own triunity. Not too long ago, I taught the book of Philemon, and we ran into Koinonia in that book. And, and after I explained Koinonia there, I got a really cool letter from a fellow learner that lives elsewhere that studies online with us, and he wrote me this. He said, Wayne, it's easy to love people in the abstract, but it's really hard face-to-face. Studying Koinonia, I'm convicted by my need to get involved I have used the sin of other people as an excuse to take the easy way out and just hang around the periphery of our church instead of joining in. Close quote. How about us? How are we, you and I, how are we holding back? God calls us to community. It's a big part of how he builds us to last. How are you joining in? Are you joining? Let me just ask you two questions. It'll reveal a whole lot. How's your giving? Are, are you giving sacrificially, regularly, joyfully? How about your serving? Let me tell you something. If you're not giving and serving, you're not really joined. You're missing the power of koinonia. Don't miss it. Go again over to our John text. Uh, verses 9 through 11. Let's read verses 9 through 11. 1 John chapter 4, 9 through 11. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this. Not that we love God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. John here shows how how koinonia, the fellowship we have in the church, is directly tied to our fellowship with God. As we say in your notes, this is the connection of the new covenant. Now, verses 9 through 11 are a very positive statement, right? Because Jesus paid for my grotesque sins and made me alive in him, I can love you people. I can see us as one in Jesus together instead of only seeing you as you're dead in your sins. You can see the same in me. But just in case we don't get how important this is, John relates the same idea negatively. Look at the next verse, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us. meno, and his love, agape, is perfected in us. Now slide down to verse 20. Go to verse 20, if you would. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother he has seen cannot love the God he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother. All right, take a deep breath. This is going to hurt your modern sensitivities. You ready? Okay. The Christian fellowship in church is not just about you, okay? You ready to take another breath? It doesn't matter whether you like the people in your church. God couldn't care less. It doesn't matter how uncool they are. It doesn't matter if they, horrors, belong to a different political party you are to love them just as God loved you. Daniel Aiken, the president of Southeast Seminary, has a really great summary. I liked it so much I put it in your notes. He says, The inward character of an individual is revealed when he lies about his love for God, declaring that he loves God but failing to demonstrate that love in his treatment of fellow Christians. Jesus had already made it clear that to love God and to love one's neighbor are mutually inclusive. That's in Mark 12, by the way. John has not hidden his own contempt, talking about earlier in this letter, for people who claim verbally to know God and be indwelt by Him, and yet treat with disdain others who have made this same commitment, close quote. All right, so review. We can enjoy redeemed community with God and with people, people in our families, people in our churches, but what about in the greater society? What about community within society? Very quickly, back to 1 John 4, 17 and 18, the verses we skipped over, go to 17 and 18. In this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, for we are as he is in the world. We are as he is in the world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears has not reached perfection in love. John here tells us how it can be that a Christian Christian set apart as God's forever redeemed community can still be a part of building healthy communities on earth. The answer is there in verse 17. We are as Jesus in the world. Jesus was in this world, but obviously not of it. One of our young adults, their son, was so struck by this that he changed his email tag. And, and he, anytime you get an email from this guy, it says at the bottom of it, in, not of. That's pretty cool. In, not of. Do you want to be a a shining community builder in this ever-changing society? Be in, not of. Exercise love and discernment just as Jesus did. Be as Jesus in the world. And we can live like Jesus without fear. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear. This is why people try to wall themselves off from community. Because they're afraid. This is why we erect barriers between people. I can't live in community with gun owners. They're too frightening. Right? Oh, my goodness. There's no way I'll live in the same community as Colin Kaepernick. I'm terrified about how that guy's destroying my country. Get a grip, people. Stop living in fear. Oh, you can disagree. Sure, you can even disagree strongly. You can argue all day and night. Apparently, many people do. But you cannot be motivated by fear, Christian. You cannot. You have nothing to fear. You you have nothing. You are guaranteed life in Jesus. You are his ambassador to this fallen world. You have diplomatic immunity. All they can do is deport you. The worst they can do is kill you like we did to Jesus. What happens then? You follow him in resurrection life. If you're his ambassador, all they can do is deport you to heaven. That's not bad. All right? (laughs) All right? Martin Luther said it best 500 years ago. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abides still. His kingdom is forever. Amen? We are called to be in the world, not of it, like Jesus, without fear and with complete obedience to God. Read from the next chapter. Uh, Just one little part for the next chapter. Chapter 5, 3 through 5. Chapter 5, 3 through 5. For this is what love for God is, to keep His commands. Now, His commands are not a burden, because whatever has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. And who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? How cool is that? You want to change the world? Believe the Lord, obey Him. That's how the world has changed, by people who live out God's words. They hold fast to Scripture, yielding to God, yielding in obedience to God. And by the way, that is our subject for next time, so let's stop here and pray. We'll pick it up next time with yielding to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters. I pray that we will will join in the community that you've created for us most importantly, the community with you, and then also community in families, even our weird fallen families, community in our church, even our weird fallen church. But it's redeemed community. And Lord, I pray that we will join even in society, in, not of. I pray for the offering we're about to take as I see the ushers coming forward. That's a massive part of how we join. And I pray you bless us in it. In Jesus' name, amen.